Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Major League All-Star and Milwaukee Brewer legend, Greg Vaughn. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a four-time All-Star. Hit 355 homers during his 15-year career and is a member of the Brewers' Wall of Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Vaughn. Vaughn, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, Boney, thank you for having me, man. It's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure. Yeah, it's good to catch up. Um I was doing my research for Vaughn and I came up with how many times can a man get drafted and not say you got I'm reading and you got to explain it to me in the audience. You got drafted five times and you end up signing with the Brewers and and uh, explain to me about the, the the draft, the secondary draft and through that process. Well, you know, my, you know, Bonnie, my, in my heart, I was a football player. Right. So. uh I was, I left to out of college to go play football. And then, uh, you know, of course, once you get there back then, they were like, Hey, we need you more for baseball. So it was like, uh, you know what? You said I could play ball. So then I came back home with Sac city and I found out they have, <laughs> you know, they had a January draft or, uh, in the June draft and I got drafted, I think in the third round. And then after that, I got drafted four times in the first round, I think. But I, w- I wasn't ready. You know what I mean? And the secondary draft wasn't like the first, you know, the, the June draft. You know, it was almost like the secondary draft we have in June where a team gets two first-round picks and basically, you know, supplemental pick or whatever it was, how it was set up. And it was a, to be able to allow, you know, kids that didn't want to go to a four-year school to be able to come out and, you know, get signed and be able to uh, start their professional career. But with me, I, I, I was a way better football player. The only reason I ever played baseball, I loved the game because, you know, we put, you know, we played everything growing up, man, you know, basketball, football, all in the same day, you know, and it was, uh, we played dodgeball, kickball, whatever it was, we played, it, you know, and uh, it, you know, they said I was a way better football player. So I should quit baseball. And that's when I decided to quit baseball and pursue, I mean, quit football and pursue baseball. So I knew I wasn't ready and I wasn't going to do something for just to do it. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't just going to sign the sign, whether it was the first round or the last round. I seen too many of my heroes and people that I looked up to in my neighborhood in California. And, you know, they sent those guys home. I knew they could send me home. You know what I mean? Even though I had, Confidence in my abilities, I didn't feel that I was where I needed to be. And also, there were some promises made to me that if I accomplished certain feats, like winning the MVP as a freshman in the Cape Cod League the first year they had wood bats, that I would get, you know, XYZ amount of money. And I did it, and they reneged on their end. So it came down to a lack of trust for me. You know, if you say you're going to do something, I just believe you should do it. Without a doubt. Uh, born and raised in Sacramento. You still reside there. Uh, you went to Kennedy High School. Like you said, you're a football player, baseball player. Uh, tell me about a young Greg Vaughn growing up. 
Hey, man, growing up, uh, I went and traded South Sacramento. Great athletes, you know, a hardworking family, like I said, hardworking community, you know. Uh, you know, and I, I was privileged to have tremendous people in my village that supported me and looked after me. And, you know, whether they look like, you know, uh, you know, Hispanic, Asian, Caucasian, African-American, uh, the Islanders, you know, my community looked like society. And that's why I always came home. You know what I mean? Because I felt comfortable there and I wanted to make a difference there. And so, you know, but we all have respect for everybody that was in that community. I shouldn't say everyone, 99% of the people did. You know, there's always that 1% that are going to do what they want to do. But at the same time, you know, uh, you know, it was, it was fun, man. You know, my mom's brother's son, Ricky Reynolds went to, we played on the same little league team, same pop Warner team. We're the same age. My, my brother and his brother, Lance and my brother, Damien, same age, my sister, Lisa, and I mean, my sister, Marielle and my cousin, Lisa, same age. So we went camping together, fishing together. Everything we did was together, you know, and, you know, he was a second round pick behind Vinny Testaverde. Uh, my cousin Jerry Royster played 20 years in Major League Baseball. We had a lot in AAA. And like I said, uh, that made it to AAA. It was, it was great, man. But like I said, I, you know, it molded me. You know, my, my neighborhood wasn't a sense of entitlement. The adult was always right. The teachers were always right. And we made an adjustment from there. You know what I mean? They weren't going to let anybody disrespect us. But for the most part, we were raised not to, to give respect and not disrespect anyone. So, you know, it, it, we were pushed hard. You know, grades were not a negotiable subject. This is the way it was. And, you know, my mother, my grandmother, they, they pushed us hard. You know, my parents got divorced when I was 12. My dad was still in my life. He was a fireman and a fire captain in Davis. And, uh, but I was raised by mostly my mother and my grandmother and like I said, the whole village, man, like I said, that's when you used to walk next door, Bonnie said, Hey, can I borrow some sugar? I'll get a yeah. cup of milk and, and I'll give it back to you tomorrow. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, you know, it was those days when everybody looked out for everybody. And, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, man. I, I you know, like I said, I was, uh, you know, blessed to be able to grow up around people and adults that really truly cared about me from counselors to principals to school secretary uh, to coaches from Little League. You know, I, my, and then I got uh, the great honor to have a great stepdad as my, my, my father, too, that coached, you know, got me into acting, got me into, you know, the arts. And he was a great man and he passed before his time. And, you know, so I became like, the man of the house at an early age. I'm the oldest of three natural, but I have a stepbrother and Michael who is, he's not really a stepbrother. He's my brother. And, uh, you know, we just went from there, man, and just tried to do the best that we could. And, uh, you know, represent not just myself, but my village and my, my family, my family, my family's name. You mentioned you, you, you love football growing up. I know now you're a Niners fan. Me and you talked off, off, uh, off air about it. I, I, I follow the Niners too. I, uh, 
You know, I, I don't have I'm not really that big of a fan, Bonnie, of anything, but I do. I, I for some reason, I've always kind of had a, a Niners thing. You know, I follow the Seahawks now just because of my time in Seattle and I keep my eye on USC just because I went to school at USC. But other than that, I, I know that it, growing up, were you, were you, did you have a team? Did you have a favorite player, whether it's a football player or a baseball player? Oh, yeah, this is going to sound weird. I was always my grandmother. So we always grew up around sports, man. So my grandmother had season tickets. So me and Ricky, we would go to, you know, all the 49ers games. You know what I mean? Every home game we would go. She had tickets for years. And, you know, the Giants and 49ers growing up in Northern California, those are our teams. USC was my college team. You know, you can, you can attest to that. USC was my college team. So, but when I came out, they were on probation. I was like, oh, no, I can't. I'm not probation. So let me look at a, a state and I pretty much could have went anywhere. Uh, no, they're on probation too. <laughs> <laughs> so then I picked, you know, I picked the U. I went to school with Michael Irvin and all those guys, Ron Brown, Lonzo Highsmith, Vinny Testaverde and all those guys down there at the U, you know, and uh, I can't wait for us to get that turned around. So, but my favorite player growing up, man, just I, I, that I admired, I, I was a big and, and I know Marcus, you know, Allen, really good. But, man, Walter Payton was my guy, man. Sweetness was my guy. I don't, I, you know, they called me Sweet G. You know, we had, you know, our funny nicknames in high school. You know, everything I tried to do was like Walter Payton. Destroy you, deliver the blow if I was running the ball, and then kill you on the opposite end if you were carrying the ball. And uh, it was just one of those things where, you know, uh, I, I started to weigh different options in different situations where, and these guys were built different when I left California, went to <laughs> down south, man. You know, they're 18, 235. I'm 176 at 17. You know what I mean? And uh, I, you know, I, I started to, you know, weigh the pros and cons of each sport or, you know, how we thought, Boney, each profession, because that's where we, you know, we had big dreams for where we wanted to go. You know, we didn't think about just playing college. It was profession. You know what I mean? I wasn't doing it just to play college. So uh, the college experience was nice, but my dreams was to be an NFL player, major league uh, baseball player, and graduate from college. So with all those things being said, because I was taught not to waste time, if you're going to go and do something, why not finish it? You know what I mean? So it was uh, a situation where football was my love, and I just played, you know, I think I, our, our time, Booney, we came in where you were allowed to play football, baseball like football. We slid hard. You know, we were everybody's friend. But once the game started, hey, man, if we had to bust out a, play, uh, a double play, we're busting it up. You know, if we have to do this, we're doing that. Whereas today, these guys stop halfway, shake hands and get out of the way. They don't even touch first base. So it's a little different watching it. You know what I mean? It's a different game, that's for sure. Yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not hating on these guys because these guys are big, strong, way, way more talented, gifted than we are. You know, it's, it's just different. You know, you know, we police the clubhouse ourselves, and you got Robin Yount, Dave Parker, Rob Deere, Mike Felder, Glenn Braggs, and Paul Molitor. You know, and you have to come back and say why you peeled off on the double play. It doesn't go down too good. No, you know what it, I mean? yeah, Molly was a hitting coach with me, and. Uh, you know, one of my favorite guys, one of my favorite guys in the game, period. But uh, I got to spend a year with him in Seattle. And, uh, you know, he did. That was his mentality. 
And it was I remember if you didn't run hard or something happened, Molly's giving you that look. And, you know, that look is body. You came up when when uh, Molly was a veteran and, you know, that look I'm talking about. But uh, it is different. And, and you and you and you mentioned you don't want to be hard on the guys. No, I completely get that, too. I've got a son that's uh, just starting his journey in the minor leagues. And, you know, I look at these kids today. It's just different because it's not necessarily them. It's the way they're indoctrinated into the game. It's like, this is what's important. It's coming from up top. We're going to tell you what's important. And that's how you're going to train. So it's not like, you know, I was in the cage today with, with a bunch of minor league guys hitting and they said, Hey, Mr. Boone, we you know, what do you think of my swing? I said, your swing is solid. I said, here's what I don't get. The great hitters I was around, the, the great players. Yeah, it, there's a time and a place for to watch video and break down. I said, but you guys are recording every swing and every angle and, and every movement you're critiquing it is, is my launch angle right and is my exit velocity right. I said, sometimes as a really good player, you got to come in the cage, take 30 hacks and just let it go. Step out of the cage, go, wow, that was really good. And that's your day. I said, when we get to, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a thing called overtraining and over analyzing everything that we do that, that I think in the long run in the wrong hands can, can definitely be a detriment to your development. Well, no, Booney, I, I, you know, like I said, that's why so many of us aren't in the game and, you know, your brother's one of my favorite guys of all time. And I got to play with, uh, with Booney in, you know, Cincinnati and then play against them and, until this day, you know, I was on with Case and they were like, Bonnie, man, you guys, you made it all the difference in the world. I said, hey, you got to back up, though, man. You got to give your guys the self-credit because I was just doing what was taught to me and I was passing it on down to you guys. But you guys were open and willing to accept it and to go with it. You know what I mean? So it, it, it took a lot of different people. You know, it wasn't just me. It took the people that taught me, me to get the information and not reevaluate how you swing the bat, but you know, just the way you become a professional and play the game. And I said, it's a testament to you, Case, Booney, Cam, uh, Pokey, you know, cause Lark didn't talk a whole lot, as you know, you know, but he led by great example, right? Great, great example. And I was on that same show saying, how do you have one of the best shortstops all time? And he basically is not teaching anybody in his hometown team, hall of fame career, in the system. And that's the part I don't get, Booty. You know, you know, uh, like you said, th- there's a time to to teach and you're worried about launch angle. You know, my son, Corey, just finished up. This has probably been his first year not playing, you know, five years of AAA. Now he's a fireman. And I think, Booty, they are given so much, you know, when they sign and when they get to camp, you know, they got parking spaces, they got a chef, they got this, they do that. You know, we had early work. We had, you know, chicken soup. We had orange slices and peanut butter and jelly. If you didn't like it, play better so you can leave. They got, you know, what's, what's making them leave? You know what I'm saying? They're already getting treated like big leaguers. We didn't, there's nothing you can say to them either because, you know, the agent has so much power now. Then he goes to the farm director, the general manager, and they won't let, so they keep players, you know, former players that try to do the right thing and teach them how to do certain things. They're, they're not implemented in their life. You know what I mean? So I, I, I agree. I used to tell my son, hey, man, if you popped up to the catcher at the first baseman, that exit, uh, that be, exit below sucked. 
If he's chasing that ball off the gate and people are dodging out the way because you just hit a missile right through the field, you know, six rows up in the bleachers, that was great. You know what I mean? Right. You, you know, we didn't need machines to tell us what was good and what was not. And I still, you know, swinging up on the ball. Well, you play with one of the best, but everybody I know that swing up or the launch angle was up was a left-hander. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's just like golf, booty. You got to hit down on the ball to get that backspin to get it out. But now they teach so much top hand and how many games would have went 16 innings, booty, if when we played? And I'm not knocking these guys again, but they're, like you said, they're top. Man on second base, no no outs in extra innings. And they got five men on the left side, and you still pull the ball. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Greg Vaughn. Yeah, I, I've had some interesting talks, <laughs> you know, on this on this podcast and with some of the greats and, and somebody you came up to came up with. And, and we'll we'll get to him later. We had Chef on and he was talking just like you were talking, moving the runner, how important that is. Albert Bell, uh, I had on and it was one of the most intriguing two hours because you remember Albert back in the day. People forget about Albert, how great probably one of the greatest run producers of all time. And he was talking just what you're talking about right now, how important it was to move that runner, how important it was to get that runner in from third, less than two outs. That was the whole game. It didn't matter how you did it. It's that you got it done. It was results. And uh, I mean, I could talk about this for days, but you're, 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 you're speaking my language when you talk about that. It's, Edgar Martinez used to instill in, in me and I was a veteran player at the time. And I leaned on Edgar for a lot of hitting stuff. And he, why would would you, you? yeah, he would always (laughs) tell me, he'd say, Booney, it doesn't matter if it's six to two, if it's seven to one, this is how you play the game correctly. And I've found that if you don't waver and you just play the game, right. Not, not just most of the time, all the time. He said, in the end, it will come out in your favor and you will be more successful. I accepted that. I took that advice. I heeded it. And I'm telling you, my career took a change, uh, took a change for the better at that point in my career. And just by doing these little things, implement that team structure that if Edgar can do it and then Booney's doing it, well, I'll tell you what, that 25th man on the roster, he's going to be doing it. All of a sudden, 
You've got a team that's so cohesive and pulling on the same end of the string. It creates unbelievable chemistry. And I believe that to this day. I, I wish I would have thought like that when I was 21 years old. It took me a little bit of time. But now, man, it makes so much sense. It's so obvious, you know, things that we we find out years later. It's like, wow, it's, it's right there in front of you. It's obvious. Well, Booty, you know what? And it's, and it's funny, man, because, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I came up young too, 22 years old, not as young as Shep, you know, who's like my brother, you know, one of my best friends. And he was, you know, he was, you know, shoot, you played with two of them. You played with A-Rod, you played with freaking Junior and Shep. You know, God blesses some people just, we're all blessed, but he blesses them in a way that this is what they were chose to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we, you know, we, we had to hang out in that cage a little bit longer. We had to, to work a little bit harder, not harder than they did, not take anything away from them, but to hold right. they're, they're, they're freaks. They're born freaks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> freaks in a, freak, freak in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. They were born to do what they do. And, and me and Shep lived together. We did all those things, but you know, and, and it's funny because uh, I think I made two all-stars or three all-star teams, you know, playing behind Robin and Polly with some good years or two all-star teams in Milwaukee before I left there. And I get to Tony Gwynn. I got eight years in the big leagues. And next thing I know, see you in the cage at six o'clock tomorrow. And, and you know, T, he, he was an introvert to a lot of people, but me and him just clicked the whole family. It was still really close. You know what I mean? To, to Alicia, the kids and stuff. So I would meet me in the cage. Hey, Amen. He put this ball on the outside part because you know what my hit instructor said when I first got there to uh, Milwaukee and I was a year and a half, 30, 30, my only two years in the minors. And he said to me, you know, when you got 382, 379 at each gap, the wind blowing in off Lake Michigan, those balls you hit to right center. He was like, son, you want to stay here and get the head out? I was like, yes, sir. So now everything that I, I, I was, I had to become a little bit different from my position because, you know, the corner outfielders, the corner uh, infielders, we were taught to slug, you know what I mean? And drive and run. So, you know, I wish I would have never lost my approach because I didn't get it back to, I really played with Tony Gwynn and we met, we hit every single day. We hit off the tee. I realized BP's overrated, you know, it's more tee stuff. And uh, then you go, you know, and I had some good years, but Bunny, you know, hitting 30 back then in Milwaukee was a good year. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You know, scoring a hundred, knocking in a hundred, or 80 or 90 back then was a huge, huge feat because, you know, you had the dome factor, but I'm just saying, man, you know, you know how cold it was over there, dude. And, you know, when you came out, there was, there weren't all those domes. There was a specific few teams that had them, but it was, it was cold, man. But then your guys' body got beat up because of that turf, you know what I mean? So there's the give and take of that. So it's, it's, it was funny, man, just because like opening day, you got, you're out there, it's 28 degrees, Wind chill has it like a 20 and wind blowing in. It's just, it's hard to play. I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a, and a privilege to play, but it's also hard when your body doesn't work. You know what I mean? Oh, Milwaukee. That was no joke. That uh, The thing about <laughs> it is Greg is you know, people. Yeah, and I'm sure they ask you the same thing. Hey, you know, what was your favorite park to play in? Well, our usually, usually our answer as players is 
where we hit the best. So right. you, you go to an ugly park like that old Milwaukee stadium and, and it wasn't too many people's favorite yard, but I'll tell you what, I hit really well there. So I'd show up and I had a different feeling about it. Like, well, it could be cold and it's old and it's rickety, but I, you know, I get hits when I'm here. I go to Camden yards and people couldn't wait to get to camp. I couldn't get a hit. And I yes. would go, I'd go to Camden Yards and they didn't have good teams either. You know, they have mediocre pitching staff, great ball uh, field to hit in. And I couldn't get a hit. And, and I, it, it's amazing. It's that's how it goes for us as hitters. We're very fickle. And it's like we usually like the stadiums where we hit no matter what the stadium looks like. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, and for me, like Camden was a, a good part. I love Seattle. And, you know, some cities you just love. Like for me, I, I love everything about. You know, I believe the guy upstairs had, you know, had a place for me to go in Milwaukee. You know, out of those five times, they drafted me twice, you know, and that's where I ended up going. And it was a perfect fit for me. You know, a lot of people, even, you know, I remember like say players such as yourself, right? And I can't wait to, you know what? I guess I wasn't meant to be a big city guy. I, I wish I would have had a chance to play in the big city one time, but as a home team, to just experience the different, uh, way baseball is treated, you know what I mean? Right. Or where you know they live and die by it. Milwaukee fans are some of the best people. I have some of the closest relationships with those people. You know, San Diego too. And I was only in Cincinnati for one year, and I probably have just as close of a relationship with the city of Cincinnati as I do with those three teams I just mentioned. You know what I mean? So, I I just think it's a, uh, you know. People respected the way you played. If you played hard, and you you know hard days work for hard days hard days pay. But at the end of the you know the end of the day, you still were paid to produce. But they can accept it if you were if you were given everything you had. You know it's hard to watch people peel off, not slide into something, not go first to third because they're already doing their little handshakes and all this other stuff. And the, the guys fumbling the ball in the outfield. It's hard for people to really understand that. You, you know what I mean? Because I do, I do No, it's, it's, it's yeah, it, it's the game. It's, and, and once again, it's not necessarily, this is what the game tells you is acceptable today. And, and I say this many times, there's a lot of things that, that uh, about today's game that, man, I wish I had that available when I was playing. Uh, and there's some things, not so much, but, but I do know this. I grew up in a family where I had a dad and a grandfather that was always comparing their generation to our generation. And I would laugh at them and I'd say, I'm never going to be like that Gramps. I, I'm sick of hearing about Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams, even though the thinking back fast forward, man, those are really cool, cool stories. I got to be told, but, but history will judge each and every one of our, one of our generations, it's going to judge our generation. It's going to judge uh, the current generation. And it is what it is right now. It's not necessarily it's just what the game's telling them to do and what is acceptable, you know, for, for Greg Vaughn, when he hit a home run and to behave like some of these guys that are hitting eight or nine a year when they hit one, man, you're going to, we're going to get, we're going to, or Brett Boone, we're going to get hit in the head a few times. And that, and that's just the way it's going to be, but that's not the game anymore. You know, they took out this, the, the, sliding rule at second base where you can't, man, I used to, 
I used to revel in that. That was my challenge as a second baseman. That's where you earn your money. It's like the great ones can hang in there and they turn that big double play in the bottom of the ninth to win the game. Nowadays, shoot, a third baseman can turn a double play at second now because he's got nothing to worry about. So it's taken away that skill level at second base. So I personally have a problem with that, but that's not the player's fault. The game took that away. You see what I'm saying? No, no. Hey, Booney, I agree 100%, man. I, 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 you know, it, it is, uh, as we say, you know, it's uh, you, they do what they are allowed to do. They go as far as they are allowed to go. And if no one says anything about it, you know, why would they stop? And if it's okay, it's uh, accepted, you know. And, and then I go back to the way our kids, you know, Booney, you know, I, I got a pleasure to be around your whole family, you know, being in baseball at the same time and, you know, playing against your dad as a manager, you know, all, all, all the things, you know what I mean? So I got the privilege of having three generations of you guys and talking to your grandfather in San Diego, you know, yeah. so it was a situation, you know, so it's, uh, we allowed them to get away with stuff that we weren't allowed to get away with. And, you know, just being a parent, like you said, we try to give our kids so much more than what we had that sometimes we forget to give them, what really made us, you know what I mean? Right. So, so it, it starts at home, then it's transpired into sports. And I'm just so lucky and, and glad that I was able to play multiple sports and I didn't have to choose in high school, whether I wanted to be a rugby player, baseball player, a football player. And I didn't have a batting coach and a hitting coach at eight years old and all these other things. You know what I mean? I, I was able to go out there and strike out five times and my coach said, Hey, Go get him tomorrow. He didn't say, hey, go get in the cage. He said, go get him tomorrow. And with the football mentality, you had to figure that out. That, hey, tomorrow I live to, you know, for another day. So it, it, it was, you know, this game is based on failure. It's a, it's a you know, a skill sport. You know, I was just out in the cage with my son, Corey, and my uh, grandson, Major. And Corey goes, wow, man, it's, it's tough teaching. I said, what'd you say? Yo, yeah, that's what I used to say about you. But you know what? You're doing a great job. Just let him stay aggressive, and then you're able to hold him in. You know, he's eight years old. He's going to be okay. But at the same time, you know, make sure, you know, the outside activities outweigh the inside video game activities. You know what I mean? Oh, you're telling I I need some (laughs) help over here at the Boone household. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so 83, 84, you go to Sacramento City College. Then you go to the University of Miami, you get drafted by the Brewers, and and that was the second time you got drafted by the Brewers. You mentioned you went 30-30 in the minor leagues, and you make your debut with the Brewers in 1989. And you you mentioned Sheffield. We had Chef on the program, and and I hear this a lot, Bonnie, around town. We've known each other for years. but I hear this more t- more about Greg Vaughn than I do about a lot of other. You touched a lot of players during your career. And, and I don't want to use the word mentor, but maybe the word great teammate is a uh, is a better term to use. But it seems like I've run into several people now that, man, Greg Vaughn was a huge part of that clubhouse, huge part of that team. And you kind of had a reputation of uh, Vaughn will make that clubhouse a better place. He brings it together. He's a, he's a natural leader. I hear that all the time. Gary Sheffield told me that. Uh, and he said you were a huge influence on him early in his career. You mentioned my brother, Aaron, and that Reds team in 99. I had left after the 98 season. You came in and they you had that run in 1999. Uh, 
where the guys are still talking about it. And you mentioned Sean Casey, Aaron Boone, Pokey Reese, Barry Larkin. They said Greg Vaughn was the reason that team did what it did that year. So it seems like more times than not, you're having your name's coming up in those conversations. It's actually a very flattering thing. At the same time, I wanted to talk to you about that. Is that something you went into? Because you make your debut in 89. You're coming into a clubhouse with Chris Bazio, who I played with, a man's man for sure. Robin Yount, Pauly Molitor, Serhoff, Sheffield's a young player. You're playing with Tito Francona, Treble Horns, uh, your skipper. Um, you did that as, as time went on in your career. You were kind of a mentor, uh, somebody that, that would take a young player under his wing. Did anybody take you under their wing when you were a rookie in the big leagues? Hey, man, I, I, I don't think we have that much time. I think whether it was on my team, like I said, from Robin Young, Paul Molitor, uh, Jim Gantner, Rob Deere, Mike Felder, Glenn Braggs, uh, Bosio, we grew up together from the same hometown, uh, Dave Parker, Willie Randolph. And like I said, at that time, man, but they, you know what it is? Mooney, they didn't make you feel stupid. They made you, they were teaching you without, with you being accepted. You know what I mean? As I'm sure, you know, Edgar and Bones and all those guys, you know, they're, they're teaching you at the same time, but also making you feel like you're accepted and, and they're not making you feel stupid. And they're, and they're, and they're, you know, like someone probably did to them. And that's all I was doing to, you know, the guys that were, you know, that I tried to impact after I left, but you know, a lot of them didn't listen. A lot of them said, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, and those guys didn't play very long, not because of me, because if they're not going to listen to someone that's done it, they're not going to listen to anybody else also. And that's what me and Lark were talking about the other day. And, and, you know, I was talking about his career and, and just saying, I don't understand how the Cincinnati Reds would not have you be a huge part of every guy that touches that dirt from the minor leagues to the big leagues and working along the side as a, the infield instructor and the infield instructor, I don't even know his name, but he should be coming to you too. But for some reason, I don't know. And I, I don't want to, you know, play the race game or get the, you know, but for some reason, man, they don't allow us to continue to get in the game and to continue to help players. You know, we're not trying to change anybody. We're not trying to, you know, take over for, the analytics guy or the manager or the general manager. We're just trying to make kids become better pros or what it takes to become a pro and simplify it a little bit. Like you said earlier, Booney, don't tell me 79% of the time at two o'clock, he throws sliders. You know what I mean? I don't need to know that. I just need to know what he throws. You know what I mean? Just give me his pitches because I know how he's going to pitch me and it might be different than he pitches somebody else. And I don't want to look up there and see two at 205, 203. Oh, this is going to be a slide. You know what I mean? It's going to take away from my instincts and what I do best. And, you know, this is a skill sport, man. We're taught to recognize and, and have a feel. I think the players now lose the feel because they get so much information. You know, I remember Robin Young saying, someone said, oh, yeah, he throws his split finger. Oh, two Robin's like, hey, 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 just tell me his pitches. And he won a you know he won MVP at two different positions. Just tell me his pitches. I might not. Hey, I don't know about you, Boney. I didn't hit a good slider, so I'm looking for <laughs> something I can get on before I can get to that slider. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. and the only slider a breaking ball I'm going to hit 
are hanging breaking balls. So, you know, like in Cincinnati, I would have that machine set up on about maybe 55 where you had to, you know, you got to get loaded, sit, wait for that hanger, let it come to you and work on hitting that way. You know, when my son was playing and I went to the, I'd be in spring training at the Mets, they have the slider set up on 97 down and away and expect you to hit it. I'm like, I'm, I can't swing at that. Why am I going to practice hitting that strikeout pitch? You know, we're trying to hit mistakes. I might try to file it off, but I can't. I'm going to see more hangers than I am that pitch. That's funny, too. You mentioned the, <laughs> I don't want to don't tell me the percentage of time he throws the slider. It is. It's so true. It's it's baseball. We're different hitters, uh, different hitters in different parts of the lineup. You know, you got your your speed guys, your leadoff type guys. Well, a pretty good chance. First pitch of the game is going to be a fastball down the middle. If Vonnie's up with a runner on with, with a runner on second base open, uh, depends who's on deck. But but people don't understand. You take that all into account. You take into account. Yeah. Are you hot or are you not? Who's in that bullpen? What have you done this particular series against them? How have you hurt them in the past? How have you hurt this pitcher in the past? That guy on deck, does he hit well off the pitcher you're facing right now? If he doesn't, maybe they'll pitch around you a little bit. All these, all these questions and all these, these different tidbits go into a formula. And that's how we come up with a game plan when we leave that on deck circle to what we're going to look for and what our plan is. And and the best hitters I've been around, they have a plan. They stick to that plan. They don't waver. And, uh, but, but it is, it's hilarious to me when you, when you bring up the percentage Oh, 75% of the time he throws a slider to who what's the situation <laughs> yeah. of the game. Is it the seventh inning? Is it lead off? Is it nine, nothing? Is it two to two? Who's on deck? Is it lefty? Is John Olerud hitting behind me today? Well, it might be a little different scenario. How he's going to pitch me. You know, all these factors are, are so important. It's not a math problem on, on the surface. It seems like it. it's like, oh, yeah, the percentages. It's math. No, it, it's the situation of the game. And, and it's funny. You, you mentioned earlier we don't have time for all that. We could talk for hours about that part of the game. That some, sometimes it drives me crazy when I just get a layman take on it. And, and I don't have time to, to really expand and explain why the layman take take is incorrect yeah you know you, you know what's crazy bunny you know like i said the first thing i would implement if i was i would let players play flip and i would let players play pepper you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. because i need my guy to be able to have back control and i don't care if he throws it off your knuckles like he said would ever say just find a way if i got three guys all the way on that other side the man on third base less than one out i we practice, Booney. How many times have we practice every single day? I will trade it out for a stake to help us win every day. Without I hit a ball to shortstop if he's back, a ball to second base if he's back. But I can't. We would get screamed and yelled at for pulling balls with it being just a slight shift. Because me and you were, you know, you, you went to right center. I didn't go on the ground to the right side, but I would go on the right side like you the other way. But, I, but our bread, you know, my bread and butter you know, I was a pool hitter. With that being said, I'm not a pool hitter when the situation didn't call for me to pull. You know what I mean? Right. I have to, you know, if there's a man on first, you know, I didn't change a whole lot. But if there's nobody on that other side, and I'm trying to shoot that side. And you know what? More often than not, I'm going to get my swing right. and It's going to help me for a long time. 
<laughs> you know, opposed yep. to just pulling off and rolling over on balls. So, you know, but you know, what I'm frustrated is about though is just how everyone's so scared to let us back in the game, Bodie. You know, that's what frustrates me. You know what I mean? It's just like we can't work together. Every other sport has ex ball players. You look at the Braves, they probably had 20 years worth of experience. So I was happy the Braves won. You know what I mean? Not not to the point where Dusty Baker, Sacramento boy uh, as well. Sacramento man, you know, the godfather. My respect to Dusty, I, I take the boy part out. But, you know, that was just, you know, talking about, you know, in baseball terms, like you said, Lambin terms. But I want Dusty because all I hear about is he has to fight for a job every single year. And he's one of the most successful, respected managers in all the game of baseball. And I, it was hard for me to root for the Astros, but I was rooting for Dusty. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I was rooting for Ron Washington. I was rooting for all that experience, Walt Weiss, all those guys that they had, Seitzer, all those guys they had in the dugout that I played against because they showed me right there that it can work and it can happen and you can be successful. Without a doubt. Get You get to the big leagues in 89 uh, at your debut. 90 hit 17. 91, you start to put it together. You hit 27 and 98. Follow that up at 23 homers in, in 92. and in 93, you're an all-star for the first time. Uh, first time you hit 30 home runs, driving 97 runs. Um, take me through those early years in Milwaukee. Hey, you know, like I said, I was just trying to learn from – I would watch Robin out, and he told me early on in the spring training, you know, that, you know, from the first camp I went to, you know, they take you to the big leagues, and it's like, the only thing you have control over is the effort every single day. That's what you, that's the only thing you have control over is your effort and attitude every single day. Cause you know, it's funny. You can put, you can hit four lasers and it's not, 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 you know, four times in a row, but your effort and your attitude, you have control over. And I would watch him get injected. I mean, get fluid taken out, not injected, but take fluid out his knee. Pressed it, no. Flew it out his shoulder. Ice. Never bitch. Never complain. Never say a word. And go out there play. Hit a pop-up and be five steps from second base when the ball came down. So if Robin Young can do that, I can do that. Yeah, you definitely had some some good guys early in your career to, to follow. And, you know, once again, I can't say it enough. Molly is just – Paul Molitor, just one of my favorite guys. And they just came from that school of thought where you play a certain way, you behave a certain way. And that's just it. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no exceptions to the rule. It's like, this is what we do. We put our uni on. This is how we play the game. And, you know, and there's but, no exceptions. Yeah, yeah. There's not because I mean, not only are you are earning the respect of your teammates, but your peers also, they know who came in hard, who did, you know, we'd be there, Bonnie, and we'd be talking and we knew, who you could throw inside to, who you can intimidate, who you couldn't, you know, it was, it, it, it was a different time. You know, it was, uh, I remember one time in uh, Baltimore and junior had that streak going and I, you know, I just see a ball hit in second base. I'm going after whoever's over there. You know what I mean? There's some times I hit a rod that, you know, and I like a rod, I, you know, I like junior, but during the game, I just forget. And it's hey, if I can break this double play up, he might throw it away. And I heard Junior one time say, Ugh! you know, I was like, please get up, please get up, please get up. Because, you know, we're in Baltimore. 
and I don't want any death threats. I want to be able to be able to continue to play <laughs> <laughs> and the streak is going, you know what I mean? So, and I was like, Junior always said, yeah, you, you got to be Vonnie on that one, but there was no animosity. There was no, you know, that's just the way it was played. No one was yelling and screaming at anyone. You know what I mean? That's just the way we were taught, you know? And uh, it, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that has been lost, but if you look at your two high, uh, highest paid players besides pitchers in the game, and if you look at your highest paid pitchers in the game, look how they approach it, that same mentality. You know what I mean? You take Trout, Mookie Betts. They play the game the way it's supposed to be played. You, you know, and then you go with Scherzer, and I don't know who, who's after him. Scherzer's not out there making friends. No. <laughs> well, that's the type of mentality I want on on the mound. Game game six. Who we who we going with? Game seven. Who we going? I want a Scherzer mentality on that mound that I'm playing defense behind. You know, and like I said, I, I had Dan Plezak was a great closer, and I played with some great pitchers. You know, throughout my career, but you know, we got to, we got the Hell's Bells, man. We knew it was a wrap in San Diego. We if you get to Hell's Bells, it was over. You know, so. That's also a good feeling, like I said, but our closer had that mentality. He didn't throw a hundred like everybody else, but with his attitude, his mentality, his toughness and his makeup and the way he worked out, he could have been throwing 200, you know what I mean? And made the hall of fame off his changeup. That's still good. You know what? The the song was so cool. I, I, I played with Trevor one year uh, in 2000. We were teammates, but the rest of my career was against him. I didn't, I didn't have, I I like to tell him that I didn't have too much success off Trevor. I did take him deep one time, but, but the song was so cool. and, And you're right. You knew when the song came on, that game was pretty much over. But the song was so cool as an opponent, you'd be like, all right, here we are. This is showtime, baby. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was a lot of fun. All right, we get to Milwaukee, 94, 94. We get to 96. You're having one of your best years ever. Uh, and they up and trade you midseason from the Brewers to the Padres. What's going through your mind? Uh, you know, you're coming up as a kid with, with Milwaukee. And now all of a sudden, 1996, you're going to San Diego. How, how was that adjustment for you? What do you what, what's going through your mind at that point? Well, I tell you, it's funny because, you know, as much as, like you said, there's a few players that played in an organization that wanted out that didn't like it there when they got there. There's some, a lot of teams and players that, didn't, that hated coming there, but I loved it there. You know what I mean? I, that's all I knew. That's all I knew. That's, what I came up with, you watch Robin play his whole career there. You watch Jimmy play his whole career there. You know, Polly, you know, he was one of the first. If he probably wanted to, he would have played his whole career there, but he was able to go on and, you know, win some World Series and play for some some great teams. And it was a shocker. They, they, they called in a special meeting at, you know, right before. And Phil Garner wanted to address the team and say thank you and you know, Rillo, Jaha, Dave Nelson, Graham Lloyd, and all Pat Lista, everybody's coming around like, what do you know? Because I was trying to do the same thing they did when they put Robin Young's locker next to when I was my locker next to Robin Young's locker, road and home. That's all the wisdom that I've gotten from him. I was trying to pass on to these guys when everybody else was gone and I was in his position on that team, you know? So for me, I guess it was a big deal because Sal Bando came down and it was nothing personal. 
And, you know, I, you know, be, you know, Boney, we're California boys, been able to come home, play with Tony Gwynn, Caminetti, and have a chance to win. That was exciting, but still, it was a big adjustment period for me, too, because once again, I'm trying to come in and not disrupt anybody's clubhouse and trying to fit in. And back then, you had the National League umpires and the American League umpires. And I remember when I, I, I flew out that night, we were playing the Braves. So I'm actually in a Braves hotel because, you know, I didn't have a house yet. And I see the umpires down, downstairs. And the first thing they say to me, congratulations, you just got traded to the big leagues. I was like, damn, I've been in big leagues eight years. It's just been the American League. But, you know, you see the same guys in spring training, but congratulations, you just got traded to the big leagues. I must have got kicked out like the first, I don't know how many games because they were treating me like a rookie again. You know, uh, I had to earn that, my respect. To, that's right. Respect. That's that's back when the when the umpire units, they weren't they weren't national or they were National League and American League. So you didn't see you didn't see uh, the in the American League, you didn't see the National League umpires. Now they're all cohesive and they go league to league to league. Doesn't matter what. They're just kind of uniform. Yeah. They, yeah. They, yeah. They weren't they, they, they weren't a like you said, cohesive group. You know, they, they were still separated. You know, we see them in spring training. They knew who everybody was. But the first thing they said to me, I'm like. I didn't understand what they were talking about. I just thought they thought the National League was better. And I was like, OK, I can go with that. But then all of a sudden, some of the pitches they were calling me at the beginning uh, man, I was like, hey, I've been in this league eight years. And they said, hey, man, you got to earn your stripes over here. I already earned my stripes in Major League Baseball. Now I got to earn them again? Eight years? <laughs> right. that, that sucks. Eight years, eight years later, <laughs> I got to earn them again? Yeah. I'm like, wow, okay. You know, so some days are better than others. But then also, too, you're trying to fit in and uh, learning, you know, what your players do, you know, what they expect, how they go about their business. You know, the late Kevin Towser was there, you know, I appreciated KT. Then you had Boach, you know, Peach, you know, uh, Davey Lopes. So the staff, Flannery. I mean, like I said, Matt Merv Redmond. I mean, you're talking about experience again. You know what I mean? You're talking about all these guys that have done it and played. So that year was rough because there was an adjustment period. But Cammy said that changed everything for him because now he has a power here behind him. And then the next year, it flip-flopped. He hit behind me. You know what I mean? So – it was, it was very unique for us, for me to get a, a, not just adjusted to the city. So when people are talking about Lindor, you know, at least he came over in, the, you know, in spring training. I was still trying to learn my team. I came over halfway. 96, you ended up hitting 41 homers, 117 ribbons. You were an all-star again that year. And I want to get to 1998. You hit 50 homers. You're an all-star. Drove in 119. What an unbelievable year. And I remember that year because I watched it a, a lot of your homers. Um, <laughs> you ended up going to your first World Series. Um that city had to be going crazy. And it was the and it was the Mac and Sosa. And and I was just going over getting ready for this for this podcast. And I thought, wow, that's right. Vonnie's year. He hit 50. And it was like a footnote because the camera was on, you know, how many guys throughout in the history of baseball have hit 50? Not too many, but that particular year, it was the Mac and Sosa show. And you're just kind of quietly hitting a lot of homers. Take me through that whole 98 season and uh, through that World Series when you, when you face off against the Yankees. 
Well, you know, it, it, it was funny. It, it started in spring training. And like I said, you know, I, I was just blessed once again to be around a bunch of great guys, man. It was, uh, and I remember I had like a, a little straight hamstring early in the spring training. And, you know, my nickname, they call me Hootie. You know what I mean? You know, Puck in American League called me Little Puck. Rest in peace. And then I get over here, they call me Hootie, like Darius Rucker. You know what I mean? Right. So, so I got the stem machine on and the team stretching. All I can hear him, Hootie, Hootie. So, dang, I got to get up, take the portable unit out there because we got to stretch. You know, it was like Comedy Central, man. You know, everyone had a nickname and, you know, we had shirts with nicknames on them. And that's just what I did. You know, we, we tried to have fun. But we had great leadership. You know, you had Kevin Brown, you had Trevor, you had, you know, Dan Baselli, you had, uh, shoot, you had Stu as the pitching coach. You know, you had, we had a lot of toughness, but you know, like I said, Wally, Wally was the glue. You had Carlos Hernandez behind the plate. Every day was somebody different, but it started in spring training. And that particular stretch day, as I'm limping out there with the freaking stem unit on, laying on the grass, we were, up to one of our usual pranks, you know, I nicknamed Joey Hamilton face, you know, like Jack in the box. Cause you know, Joey, <laughs> big dad, you know, all, he's just all head and no, just all face, you know, it was, it never ended, you know, it just went all the way back. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I could hear Sweeney, you know, who's like a brother to me. Anytime I got traded, he got traded. So, I mean, that's my brother from another mother, mother, you know what I mean? We called him Charday cause he, you know, his forehead, you know, he had no hair. You know, and so, and it's not a knock on Charday. It was just like, we just tried to have fun. You know, Tony was Gary Coleman, you know, uh, Cammy was, you know, Cousin It. You know what I mean? It was just one of those things where we, we like to have fun. So, Joy Hamilton had this convertible, uh, convertible Mercedes, right? You know, like the 500 SL, you know, everyone had back then. And uh, Wally put on, Got a, somehow got a hold of a jack in the box. No one knew, but like a couple of us. So I knew I had to go out there. We're talking mess, and then, you know, Joey's ragging me, and everybody. I said, "Yo, we're gonna get you face. Don't worry about it." Now, yeah, I ain't worried about it. You know, with that southern draw from Georgia. So next thing you know, you see us convertible and boats and towers and everybody. They're out there. Everyone, let us do what we do. They they get on the. Uh, his car, his car, you know, turns on the warning track like Derek Bell. So imagine Derek Bell's look in Toronto when they were going to auction off his truck. Joey comes around, <laughs> Wally has it on, and he's sitting up kind of high, like you know, like they put like a bucket. So you know, his feet weren't really, really weren't touching the ground. All you see is his head and face, and Joey has his back to us. And if you just seen a reaction to him, man, that started off spring training and that 90, 98 season, you know, and. Uh, we were just that close. And I remember Wally having a meeting one day, you know, like right before a breaking camp. And it was everybody just going on base two times. He didn't say two hits. He didn't say driving two runs. He said, everybody get on base two times. And that was our goal and motive for that particular season. We didn't care if it was a walk, if it was a hit, hit by pitch, put the ball in play, they booted it around, whatever. Everybody's goal was to get on base two times. And uh, then we had one of the best pitch hitters, you know. You got Coop, you got Lenny Harris and Mark Sweeney, you know, two of the best. Manny Moda, all time. Then you got them coming in, knocking their runs. And you got, you know, Go-Go, 
at shortstop, Kivio at second. Every day it was it was somebody different. You got the, like I said, one of the best all times ever, Tony Gwynn. You got Cammy, Wally. You know, you got Finn in center field. Man, it was just a group of people that not only were a team, but really, really loved each other. You know what I mean? We, until this day, we still have a text chain. And if I can read you what Boach said on her, he goes, man, this is unbelievable that you guys are still that close. And, you know, usually before COVID, we had, you know, our once a year golf tournament because that's just what we do. You know, like I said, we still continue to love each other. And not that we weren't close with other members and other teammates or anything like that, but this team was just special, man, that we, we truly care and truly love each other, you know, and, uh, you know, for it to happen and to see the city of San Diego go crazy and back us and pack them stadiums. And it, it, it was ironic. You know, you forgot Junior, too, your, your teammate. He had 54 home runs that year, too, I think, something like that. And it was just – but he had that almost every year, you know what I mean? So it was a normal junior year, you know, 48, 49. But I, I think, you know, a lot of our guys were hurt and we were winning. And I think I finished second or third like three or four years in a row in MVP voting during that time, second or third. And uh, – but you had – you know, you know, you, you play in San Diego, you know, you're not Chicago or St. Louis – you know, you're not one of the feature games. You know, we weren't featured until it was the end of the year, but we were up by 30 games. So it really wasn't a feature. And ironically, I probably didn't help my cause too much because I had a month and a half to hit 50. You know what I mean? I was stuck on 49 for a month and a half. So uh, the last game of the season, Bo said, Bonnie, you good? Like I said, we're up. I said, no, Bo, you know what? I want to run in with my teammates and celebrate this experience. You know, that, you know, you don't get to do it too often, but this was us finally celebrating getting to go to, you know, the playoffs, which we went 97, you know, but St. Louis, I think, beat us, or 96, St. Louis beat us. Uh, and I didn't have too many of those chances because back then we were in the East, even though we had great teams, Toronto, Toronto with that crazy magical team and players that they had they're winning the east you know what i mean they'd win a 98 100 we went 92 games 93 and finished third so you know it wasn't set up like it is now so we would all go home but i went to tunnel i said last at bat i said dummy you know what 49 is a good year man 49 is not bad just go out there. So now I'm 0-2. Last pitch, top of nine on the road, hanging slider. I hit in the bullpen down left field line. See, Boney was a hanging slider. It wasn't a – It wasn't a good slider. It wasn't you know, located. Of, yeah, yeah we, we don't hit good ones. You know what no, I mean? No, usually just, you tip your cap to, on the good ones. Yeah, so I, I can't practice on the good ones. I can practice on the bad ones. Right. So I uh, hit it and – when I say these guys truly love, we, we truly love one another, dude. It was, it was crazy. Davey Lopes jumping up and down, almost broke his arm at first base. I get to flan. He's jumping around, giving me almost a hug before I get to home plate. And, you know, in the big leagues, guy hits a home run. No one comes out of the dugout. 
My no, that's, team, that's college baseball. <laughs> yeah, Little League World Series. Right. <laughs> you know, it's the last game of the year before the playoffs. My whole team was at home plate, man. Like, they wanted it just as much as I did. And to see guys react that way and to have people that have been, you've been fighting with for the last three years, man, it's, it was iconic for, to let them know how much they really cared and loved you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now, now we were able to go into the World Series and, and you know, well, the first we got to get by the Astros, the Braves, then the World Series. And then, uh, you know, to be able to hit two home runs in game one and have my son there. And, you know, friends, family, my daughter, not my youngest, but my daughter. And to be able to be in a dugout with Tony Gwynn, Spike Lee, uh, Chris Rock, and Denzel, and then have them acknowledge your home runs, you know what I mean, as you hit home plate. they like, you know, they're Yankee fans, too, but they're like, hey, <laughs> good work. And, you know, it, you know there, there's some memories that, you will always cherish. And for my son to be able to be there, because at that time, Corey, he, he was in a dugout and on the field a lot. So, you, you know, that 98 season was magical. And uh, what followed after that was, you know, not a chance to be able to, you know, go out there and fight with those guys again, man. We, you know, for three years, we were so close to get to where we wanted to get. And then the fire sale began. And uh, that's one of the only times Tony Gwynn, and the city of San Diego was really pissed off, you know, that uh, we didn't get another run. And they, they, you know, the players that were under contract, they got rid of, you know. So Tony fought for me. The city, the fans fought for me. But and I really had a lot of animosity towards management at that time because not so much boats, because boats always tell me the truth no matter what. And he wasn't making those decisions, but it was. I did what I was supposed to do, Boney, and the first person ever to hit 50 and get traded, here we go once again. That same question I asked earlier, I said, how come we never get a chance to stay in the game? And then even when we do something good, we don't get a chance to stay, we get traded. You know what I mean? So, but it was a blessing in disguise. I got a chance to go to Cincinnati and be with all those young players. But it was a, it was a fight too, man, because like I said, I didn't even find out from the organization. I found out from uh, Mar Shot calling me at about 4.45 my time, and I thought it was a nightmare or a dream because we got camp in a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, day, day before that, they're telling me I'm not going to get traded. And 4.45 in the morning, you know, you get that phone call, you're like, hope everybody's okay. You know what I mean? And then it was like, Greg, this is Mark Shaw, honey. I just want to tell you, congratulations. You've been traded to the Cincinnati Reds. And all you have heard during that time is, Horror stories, Boney. You know what I mean? Right. Brown bag, commercial flights, you know, just all the rhetoric and bad stuff that went on. And so after I got past, it wasn't really a nightmare. And she said, we have one problem, though. You have a goatee. We don't allow facial hair. But I was still bitter, Boney. I was still hurt. I was bitter. I had animosity towards the management in San Diego. And my first response, and I'm going to, like I said, I believe in, you know, being transparency, telling the truth is I'm not coming. My kids have never seen me without uh, a goatee. Uh, and I was more mad at the Padres than I was the Reds. And second, 
you know, I'm a West, a Northern California West Coast kid. So, you know, we have that like free spirited, you know, it's 1999. What does my goatee have to do with anything? And to this day, all the players behind me now, and they're so happy that, that they get to express themselves the way they want to. But at the same time, when I just seen you, you know, we're there for the Reds Hall of Fame thing. And I just seen you and all the old guys, I still go up to them and apologize and say, being the age that I am now, in no means was a disrespect to you guys. And I want to say I'm sorry because you guys were much better players than I was. You got and every, you know, owning businesses. I understand rules are rules and I should have shaved the goatee. But you didn't, and you hit 45. It drove it 118. That, that's what's remarkable, remarkable about your career. You go, that 98 run was so magical, so awesome. You hit 50, unbelievable group of guys. Now, all of a sudden, you're pissed. You get a call from Marge, who I played in Cincinnati five years, <laughs> and, and I know all about the Marge, the good, the bad, the, the indifferent. Uh, you get to play with some young players, and, and once again, ha- you were a huge influence. You know, Mike Cameron. Cameron's one of one of my best friends to this date, and he still talks about Vonnie and, uh, you know, Uncle Aaron. He loves talking about Vonnie and and Casey and, and Lark. You're a big. But you go over there and you have that magical run. I had left after that 98 season. I went to Atlanta, but I was keeping my eye on you guys. And and and, and you brought you started doing that dance at home plate. And it just seemed like you guys were having a lot of fun. You had another big time year. Uh, it was only one year, but it seems like back to back, you go from San Diego to Cincinnati and kind of have two magical years in a row. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. And then even my first two years in Tampa, my first year in Tampa was good. I mean, you know, I've had shoulder elements my whole career, but, it was just the atmosphere, man, playing in the dome. And like I said, I'm happy for the city of Tampa that they're experiencing so much success because we had so many bad teams at that time. But once again, management, you know, you had Conseco, McGriff, Vinny Castillo, Gerald Williams. And so I had some options, you know. I, I could have went other places, but I believe they were trying to get better. And I took my body of work to Tampa and it didn't, you know, the flex of the first year was good. I think I made the all-star team the first year or the second year. And then it was, those guys were gone by my second year of the all-star break. You know, and I'm playing with a bunch of guys, a lot of that probably should have still been getting developed. Uh, we're playing in front of 4,000 fans at 3,500 were usually the other team's fans. You know, then you play the Yankees and Boston and some of your, you know, teams that had big time superstars on it on on the on their their team, and it was we got three thousand, they got you know ten thousand or eleven thousand. It was a hard place to play, man. And it, and you know, I have no regrets because, like I said, once again, man, it, it was an honor and a blessing to be able to wear a big league uniform. And I'm not going to sit here. I made the choice. I was a free agent. I chose to go there. Maybe if I play better and do better, everything would have worked out differently. But we don't have the fans. We're used to winning, and the expectation isn't much. And they, I think that's when I got to see not not all of them because there's a lot of young guys that were, you know, see. I had CC who's like another 
you know, Carl Crawford underneath me. Rocco Modelli was underneath me. Josh Hamilton was, you know, they all were locker, be- you know, mates with me that we, that ate with me, that I took out to get their first suits, whatever it was that were, you know, cl- still close to me. We had a lot of guys that weren't ready for that. Shoot, you're talking about American League East. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's a big difference, you know? And then you, you, it was just hard for me to, get guys to bitch about the spread that shouldn't be eating Taco Bell because they're in A-ball. You know what I mean? And, and they're, they're bitching about the spread and they're, you know, I just felt like they forgot, you know, what a privilege and honor it was to even wear or don a big league uniform. You know what I mean? I tried not to take one day for granted any day I was able to put that uniform on. You know what I mean? Because all the guys, and what, especially the people of color, what Jackie Robinson went through, man, what did I have to complain about? I'll tell you what, I, you talk about Tampa Bay and that, and that stadium and that, you know, it was, you'd come in there and you remember that one guy that would heckle us. I forget his name, but he would pick one guy out from the opposing team and he would just yell at you the entire series. I for, I forget what they used to call. It. I think he has since got kicked out, but that was another one of those parks, Bonnie. And I think it was those, you know, when I was coming to Tampa Bay, that stadium, uh, I was playing in those early, early 2000 Mariner teams and we were pretty good. So we'd come, we'd come to Tampa Bay and it was kind of like we could whoop up on Tampa Bay. I love playing in that, in that, in that stadium. Yeah. You know that, but that was another stadium. I see more rules get made up during the course of a game and Cleveland would come in. No, no, Vizcal was with you. I, I think he ran all the way out to like, Left field line as the ball is rolling across one of those little trap things as it's rolling, rolling. Caught it. Yeah, he caught it. Yeah, left field. <laughs> that ball, that ball would hit the back wall, and he called me out. And, I, and we, and we got to argue. I mean, that ball would hit the back wall, and we, we got to argue, argue, argue. Okay, we'll give you a double. Now, anything that hit hit that circus tent up there was a double. You know what I mean? But I'm like, they literally caught. There was some stuff I seen there, dude. It was unbelievable. <laughs> you know, but you know, I spent half my time in Vegas now, so. Vegas is either going to get them or the A's. I feel sorry for the city of Oakland just because of what they've been through, but I'm excited for, like I said, man, spending you know half my time in Vegas and seeing what that city's doing, man. It's it's unbelievable. It's exciting, and uh, one of those cities is going to lose another franchise. Yeah, Oakland's had it so tough, you know, still playing in the Coliseum, and. You know, and they've had an unbelievable run, really, with the, with the budget they've been under for the last 20, 25 years. Man, it seems like oh, that Oakland A's teams are always finding a way. They're always rebuilding, always turning over. Uh, and, and with the, you know, they're kind of cash strapped and they're not dealing with the same budget as the other teams in their division. And they seem to find a way. They got something good going. But you're right. I mean, with all the fighting with the city and 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 the Giants, you know, they don't want the Giants don't want to coming in on their their turf. And I think it'd be great for the game to get somebody in Vegas. We're seeing how the, the NFL's doing. Uh, and it would probably be a big boom and, and good for Major League Baseball. Uh, you, you end up going to Colorado and you finish your career. You retire after the 03 season, a four-time All-Star. You end up being, uh, as we, we said in the opening, going into the Milwaukee Wall of Honor. Um, hit 355 homers. A, a hell of a career. I want, I want to know uh, what you're up to now. We, we, we had a chance to, to catch up a little bit recently. We, we did that Reds exhibition. It was good to see you. 
But let's get let's get caught up on your on your wine. You know, everybody out there and you can check Vaughty out on Instagram or Twitter. He's he's always talking wine. There's a lot of my buddies that have gotten into it. Uh, we had Bledsoe and Rick Meyer on the program. I know your boy, Dusty Baker. He he's uh, he's into the wine. Rich Aurelia was was a teammate of mine in Seattle briefly, but but a teammate. How'd you get into it? And, and tell me about uh, what's going on with you and, and your wine right now. Well, thanks, Moni. You know, well, first of all, you know, with, with COVID the last couple of years, you know, I have my VonsValleyFoundation.org. And, uh, you know, it was first, at first, you know, came about having a foundation because my oldest son, Corey, when he was 11 years old, he's now 31, you know, you get a call in Toronto that he has juvenile diabetes. And, you know, so I'm like, man, I got to run down to this business center because you can't get a flight out of Toronto until in the morning. So trying to get all the information I can about that. So I formed bondsvalley.org. We, you know, been having celebrity golf tournaments and raising funds that way, you know, comedy shows, just different things to generate, uh, generate revenue, trying to find, find a cure for diabetes. But then, you know, being from Sacramento, I did not, I felt my calling was bigger than that. And it always was, but I was always doing that with my personal and private money. So I started to try to raise money to be able to help people. And then when the COVID hit, I did not feel it was right for me to continue my golf tournaments for the last two years. So I said, what's another way that I can generate funds? So I was able to partner up with a winery in Lodi and the E2 family winery and uh, where the proceeds from the wine go back into the foundation, which nobody is on payroll for, everybody volunteers, but we were able to, to generate revenue so we can still help our villages. And I consider every, every city that I played in a village. So, I, you know, during the first year, I was able to partner up with Island Burgers. We fed a million people, you know, so, you know, just because I did not want to sit and be idle, I had to find a way to generate funds so I could continue to help these, help society and my community and communities, wherever that is, and whoever needed help, you know, we were able to send stuff, you know, when they had the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, we were just whatever, you know, is, is, is going on and having a everlasting effect on life, I feel is important to us. So for me, I had to find a way to generate funds. So now I have 20with3wines.com. That's where, that's where you can go and uh, we ship everywhere in the country. We'll be in a few stadiums and, and restaurants around the surrounding uh, the surrounding the stadiums. We will also, you know, we have big plans to expand. It's going really, really well. I, you know, you've seen the guys, I think they drank all the wine that one day when we were in Cincinnati yeah. you know, or a couple of days, you know, so, you know, from uh, Pinot's to the Caps to the Merlot's, the, the Shards and the Rosé right now. But I have, I've, I've been through harvesting. I've been through with the winemakers adding, subtracting, because I want these wines to taste like wines I want with a third of the proceeds going towards uh, the foundation 
and the, you know, the rest of the money has to go back into the winery. So we continue to have a couple of different ways to generate revenue so we can continue to help whatever's going on. Not only did we feed, you know, a million people during COVID, but we also, uh, 30,000 Chromebooks, 20,000 whiteboards, you know, with the monies that we were able to raise and with my personal money, because distance learning wasn't set up for all kids to have success. And I think everybody is, every kid is important and should have that opportunity to learn. It's just not his fault if he lives in a different zip code than another zip code, especially in California with all the taxes we pay, Boney, everybody should have the opportunity to, to get a good education, you know? So I, that's where, you know, I got into the wine business too. I didn't know it was going to be this much fun. I didn't know it was going to be this successful. And, you know, I'm still learning, you know, I, I, like I said, I've been through the harvest. I've been through the label, the paper, picking out labels. All these labels are unique. And if you go to 23wines.com, like I said, we can send it to anywhere in the country. You're able to order. We can deliver straight to your door, but it will be in some stadiums and surrounding restaurants around stadiums. And uh, like I said, I, I appreciate everyone that has trusted me to and has bought them uh, the wine. And I love the response. You know, the, the response has been good, but it's not for everybody. But, you know, everyone has a different taste and I don't take it personal. But at the same time, like I said, it's my way of uh, giving back and to uh, give everybody a chance or make our world a better place. And then I have my wellness centers. Yeah, that's what that's what I want to hear about. Me and you were talking about it briefly uh, on this last trip together in, in Cincinnati. But I love it. I love some cryogenics. Explain yes. to me and tell me all about the business. <laughs> tell the people out there listening. Well, to me, you know, buddy, you know, being an athlete or being a professional or or just anyone, the one thing that's important to us is time. You know, you know, we have to be in charge. And we have to, you know, implement what we want to do during our time and how we want to spend it. And, you know, with this COVID over the last you know, three years now, going on three, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. I always sat in the cold pool ever since my University of Miami days, whether it was 30 degrees or 110, you know, I sat in the cold pool to try to refresh and get my body back. So I'd be able to play the next day. And now we have these machines, you know, crowd machines. Ours are a little bit different. You know, I have not, I have gas and nitrogen and, you know, different States. Uh, but we're one-stop shop. I get a lot of NFL guys. I get a lot of UFC fighters. I get marathoners. I get uh, WNBA hockey players. And, you know, being in Vegas, you know, we, you know, they have every sport except baseball now and an NBA basketball team, but also spending part of my time in Sacramento, we get those same guys here, you know? So matter of fact, I just, uh, so we have, we were the first place in the country to have a four person hyperbaric, not hyperbaric, uh, crowd machine. So actually four people can go in there at once. And after three minutes, you come out like refreshed where in a cold tub, you torture yourself for about, it was another way of discipline. But anytime you implement this type of cold, I think it's a way of discipline. You know what I mean, Boney? So it's, uh, but it's all about recovery. Anything we do as an athlete or just in life, we, we want to live 
the healthiest and have the best life that we can. And we spend so much money on a lot of other things that this is an affordable place. So not only do we have cryo, we have red light treatment, we have infrared sauna, I have uh, esthetician with cryofacials, cryo body sculpting, oxygen facials. So we have, P, uh, uh, we have the IM shots, which are, you know, lipo shots, lipo C, vitamin D, C. You know, we have every shot of managing all vitamins. You know, all, everything's vitamins. We don't have any testosterone shots or anything like that. Uh, we have, going from that, we have every type of IV possible that relates to vitamins. And, but it's not, everyone's, you know, like Bonnie said, you know, it's something like, you know, if you're a number one hitter or the number nine hitter, we have nurses and nurse practitioners and, and, and people, wellness staff able to help you and carve out a plan for yourself. And you, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a place it's where you're very, very into uh, individual. You can deal with each, yeah. each person on an individual basis. Yeah. And everything's about everything about that. I just described and also compression and hyperbaric chambers, you know? So, and if anyone's never been in a hyperbaric chamber, that is some of the most clearest, peaceful, time that you'll ever spend on this planet and when you get out it stays that way because the oxygen you have to decompress and they're big enough i know people have a problem with claustrophobic being claustrophobic but like like i said man it's it's a beautiful experience and even during COVID, you know throughout that business we were able to give out ppe and distribute stuff to not not just the community, but we're talking doctors, nurses, people of front line. I give out free IVs, free uh, IM shots to all our first responders and essential workers, just a way of saying thank you for what they were doing for us and to keep them, you know, healthy and strong and going, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, being, you know, Minority, very small, but, you know, hopefully it comes through, you know, with the MLS team here in Sacramento, you know, being an owner of a part minority, whatever it is, of any type of major league franchise in your city is a dream come true. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff in the works, but, you know, I also like my golf and then, you know, running the, the foundation. I have a great staff and they're great people. We have, uh, you know, we took two years off April 1st. We're going to pick it back up money. So be ready to go. Let's go. It's, yep. Send me that. Uh, yeah. Golf, the golf tournament. I'll come, yeah. I'll come up there this year. Yeah. Yeah. I will send you the golf tournament and we will be posting. You can go to bondsvalley.org. You can go to any, any handle at Greg Vaughn 23 and 23 wines.com and find out everything that I'm basically doing and a way that, Whatever I'm doing is always going to impact the community and my village. Very cool. All said and done, what are you most proud of baseball career? You know, Booney, I I still get the only reason I know the numbers is because what people tell me, I still never Google myself. People always ask. So until people say stuff, I don't, I think I'm most proud of defying the odds, you know, where people said, oh, he's not going to be able to make it. He's not going to be able to do this. And, and the, the actually the most thing that I'm proud of is all the friendships, uh, 
you know, and like, like I said, the brotherhood that I've established and these people that are still a part of my life. You know, it wasn't just a, a flash in the past. Everybody and, and whether former, you know, people that are still playing the game, whether it was the opposition, you know, we never played together, but we talked, we spoke and, you know, we're in our circle. You know, it's, it's that, that locker room that we established while we were playing to be able to extend it outside the walls of baseball. Greg Bond, I appreciate you coming on, man. This was a pleasure. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, man. You're helping a lot of people out there. You're doing a lot of good in the world and uh, definitely had a hu- huge influence on this game of baseball. And, and a lot of those players out there that you touched uh, w- when you were teammates with them one time or another. So I just want to thank you for coming on. And what we do each and every Boone podcast It's time to kick it back to Dan. That's going to do it for the Red Moon Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the the voice of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is all taken care of by Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Booner, flip the bat. We're out. Let's do it.